Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List podcast, the best podcast in the world. We're talking about chapter 110 of Of Human Bondage, uh, and also we're voting on what to read next because we've got about, I think, 12 chapters left on this book. I think it's got, a, I think it had 122 from memory chapters. I might have that wrong though, but we're nearly at the end. Um, so what to read next? So if you haven't voted already, go and have a vote. Have a little vote. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's going good. It's looking good. It's looking good. I won't. I don't want to um, skew the voting any more than I already have because I've sort of said my preference, and then um, I felt when I sort of saw a few people say they didn't like that idea, I felt bad because I was like, that's fine. I like. I appreciate that they don't like it, but now I don't want. Um, I don't want to have influenced too many people to vote for my idea um, unfairly. You know, I felt I felt a bit unfair that I'd said my preference um, because I host the podcast. You know, so I've got. I wonder. I guess I've got a little more influence over the community than the standard commenter would. Maybe. Maybe not. Anyway, I for that reason I didn't vote. So I've said what my preference is, but I didn't vote. So you guys vote, I'll stay out of it, and then we'll see what happens. Uh, anyway, um, let's read. What are we talking about? Chapter 110, that's right. Um, Phil is a bit murdery. He really was very murdery. Uh, swims to the mummy fish, he said, Well, of course I had to listen to the podcast after you apologized for it. And it was the hiccups. Yep. Actually, you know what's funny is last night, or in the last 24 hours, the podcast had over a thousand downloads. Um, not of just yesterday's episode, but across, you know, all the episodes. But over a thousand downloads, which is a lot. Usually it averages out, if I look at the stats, at about 300-ish per day downloads. And then you have a bigger day or a smaller day. Uh, and then occasionally you have like a spike where you'll get a thousand or twelve hundred or something like that. And yesterday was one of those, and I just thought that was funny because it was the one day where I made a comment saying sorry for the terrible podcast episode. Um, but then it seems like quite a few people went and listened um, because I said it was bad. People are curious. Maybe I should say every episode's bad. Apologize every day, and maybe more people will tune in. Um, yeah, the hiccups. Oh my god, that was so annoying. I kept my cool pretty well. I didn't get annoyed, but oh my god, it was annoying. I have to be careful not to clear my throat because for some reason, clearing my throat makes me get the hiccups. Is that weird? I really don't know if that's a, a real thing or not. Uh, weird fact about the hiccups, says Swim. Fetuses in utero get hiccups. My first son had them while I was pregnant. He was hiccuping even while I was in labor. It was kind of disconcerting. My Oh, sorry. Um, oh. The author captured the elderly's preoccupation with ill health really well. My 89-year-old mother is in ill health. And lines that resonated. Nothing nothing interested him now but his health. It's terrible the amount of money I have to spend on doctor's bills. He told Philip minutely all his symptoms. That's pretty much all that gets talked about anymore. It does make one feel a bit irritated. Yeah, I mean, I guess if... I guess if you're sick, if you're in ill health, then it, it kind of does consume you, your mind, you know, it's all you can really focus on. Uh, and it's always, it's, you know, it's always a bit of a saga. 
you know, we think people just get sick and then, you know, they either get better or they get worse. But it's not always like that. It's it's often complications on complications on complications and ups and downs and peaks and valleys. Jan Brunt said, My daughter hiccuped in utero like crazy. About three to four periods per day. It's pretty annoying, but also reassuring. Yeah, I guess it's like you at least know that they're alive. <laughs> That's pretty grim. But uh, if they're hiccuping, they must be living. I was going to say breathing, but do babies breathe in utero or do they have some kind of oxygen thing? How do, that's a good question. I just realized I didn't know that. <laughs> it feels like something I should have learned at some point. Um, that's weird. That is really weird. All right, Captain Venom said this, I can't help but feel like Philip isn't getting that money. He wants it too much, and the author has been hyping it up too much. Yeah, you're right, actually, now that you say that. He has hyped up this money too much, hasn't he? And Philip is really relying on it. So it does feel very much like he's going to get the rug pulled from under him. Uh, it is interesting to see how Philip's attitude towards the vicar changes a bit when he's now a weak, scared person in front of him, rather than an abstract image of the person who raised him poorly. Also, it's neat how the author brings up Miss Wilkinson at the end of the chapter, just to highlight Phil's position. That emotionally unstable woman whom Philip was acting as all high and mighty over is now comfortably married. And where is Philip thinking of murdering his elderly uncle? Philip. How did he go so far wrong, this boy? You know? Um, you know, I, just, I was just kind of almost laughing then as, as I was reading that because um, still we're 110 chapters in, but anytime the author is mentioned, everyone just says uh, M, capital M, just refers to him as M because we banned using the surname. And I usually, instead of saying M, I say the author. Um, I substitute that in. But I just found it really funny that still, uh, after 110 episodes, people are still, <laughs> the, the ban on using his surname is still in effect. I appreciate it, guys. I really do. Um, all right, let's read, shall we? I think we shall. Oh, I just realized that I don't have the book open. That's a bit silly. Uh, what is it again? Gutenberg. I sat down to my computer, which I never turn this computer off. I just put it to sleep. And um, it was off. So I think while I was out of the house tonight, having band practice, um, I think I must have had a bit of a power outage or something. Um, okay, what am I looking for? CX, right? 110, yeah. Oh, wait, we read 110, didn't we? So we're up to 111. Are we up to 111? Um, final line from yesterday's one. Sorry. I believe they are quite comfortable. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we're up to 111. I think. Oh, my God, I'm still... Cool, 111, sorry. Very bad podcasting by me. Goes like this. Next day, Philip began work again, but the end, which he expected within a few weeks, did not come. The weeks passed into months, the winter wore away, and in the parks, the trees burst into bud and into leaf. A terrible lassitude settled upon Philip. Time was passing, though it went with such heavy feet, and he thought that his youth was going as soon as he would have lost it and nothing would be accomplished. His 
work seemed more aimless now than that there was the certainty of his leaving it. He became skillful in the designing of costume, and though he had no inventive faculty, acquired quickness in the adaptation of French fashions to the English market. Sometimes he was not displeased with his drawings, but they always bungled them in the execution. He was amused to notice that he suffered from a lively irritation when his ideas were not adequately carried out. He had to walk warily. Whenever he suggested something original, Mr. Sampson turned it down. Their customers did not want anything, or tree, outre. It was a very respectable class of business, and when you had a connection of that sort, it wasn't worthwhile taking liberties with it. Once or twice he spoke sharply to Philip. He thought the young man was getting a bit above himself, but Philip's, because Philip's ideas did not always coincide with his own. You jolly well take care, my young, fine fellow, or one of these days you'll find yourself in the street. Philip longed to give him a punch in the nose, but he restrained himself. After all, it could not possibly last much longer, and then he would be done with all these people forever. Sometimes in comic desperation he cried out that his uncle must be made of iron. What a constitution! The ills he suffered from would have killed any decent person twelve months before. When at last the news came that the vicar was dying, Philip, who had been thinking of other things, was taken by surprise. It was in July, and in another fortnight he was to have gone for his holiday. He received a letter from Mrs. Foster to say the doctor did not give Mr. Carey many days to live, and Philip wished to see him again. He must come at once. Philip went to the buyer and told him he wanted to leave. Mr. Sampson was a decent fellow, and when he knew the circumstances, made no difficulties. Philip said goodbye to the people in the department. The reason he was leaving had spread amongst them in an exaggerated form, and they thought he had come into a fortune. Mrs. Hodges had tears in her eyes when she shook hands with him. I suppose we shan't often see you again, she said. I'm glad to get away from Lynn's, he answered. It was strange, but he was actually sorry to leave these people, whom he thought he had loathed, and when he drove away from the house in Harrington Street it was with no exultation. He had so anticipated the emotions he would experience on this occasion that now he felt nothing. He was as unconcerned as though he were going for a few days' holiday. "'I've got a rotten nature,' he said to himself. "'I look forward to things awfully, and then when they come I am always disappointed.' He reached Blackstable early in the afternoon. Mrs. Foster met him at the door, and her face told him that his uncle was not yet dead. He's a little better today, she said. He's got a wonderful constitution. She led him into the bedroom where Mr. Carey lay on his back. He gave Philip a slight smile in which was a trace of satisfied cunning at having circumvented his enemy once more. I thought it was all up with me yesterday, he said in an exhausted voice. They'd all given up on me, hadn't you, Mrs. Foster? You have got a wonderful constitution. There's no denying that. There's life in the old dog yet. Mrs. Foster said that the vicar must not talk. It would tire him. She treated him like a child, with kindly despotism, and there was something childish in the old man's satisfaction at having cheated all their expectations. It struck him at once that Philip had been sent for, and he was amused that he had been brought on a fool's errand. If he could only avoid another of his heart attacks, he would get well enough in a week or two, and he had had the attacks several times before, he always felt as if it, as if he were going to die, but he never did. They all talked of his constitution, but they none of them knew how strong it was. Are you going to stay a day or two? he asked Philip, pretending to believe he had come down for a holiday. I was thinking of it, Philip answered cheerfully. A breath of sea air will do you good.
Presently, Dr. Wigram came, and after he had seen the vicar, talked with Philip. He adopted an appropriate manner. I'm afraid it is the end this time, Philip, he said. It'll be a great loss to us all. I've known him for five and thirty years. He seems well enough now, said Philip. I'm keeping him alive on drugs, but it can't last. It's a dreadful. It's, it was dreadful these last two days. I thought he was dead half a dozen times. The doctor was silent for a minute or two, but at the gate he said suddenly to Philip, Has Mrs. Foster said anything to you? What do you mean? They're very superstitious, these people. She's got hold of an idea that he's got something on his mind, and he can't die till he gets rid of it, and he can't bring himself to confess it. Philip did not answer, and the doctor went on. Of course, it's nonsense. He's led a very good life. He's done his duty. He's been a good parish priest, and I'm sure we shall all miss him. He can't have anything to reproach himself with. I very much doubt whether the next vicar will suit us half so well. For several days, Mr. Carey continued without change. His appetite, which had been excellent, left him, and he could eat little. Dr. Wigram did not hesitate now to still the pain of the neuritis with which tormented him, and that with the constant shaking of his palace, pal, palsied limbs was gradually exhausting him. His mind remained clear. Philip and Mrs. Foster nursed him between them. She was so tired by the many months during which she had been attentive to all his wants that Philip insisted on sitting up with the patient so that she might have her night's rest. He passed the long hours in the armchair so that he should not sleep soundly and read by the light of shaded candles a thousand and one nights. He had not read them since he was a little boy, and they brought back his childhood to him. Sometimes he sat and listened to the silence of the night, when the effects of the opiate wore off and Mr. Carey grew restless and kept him constantly busy. At last, early one morning, when the birds were chattering noisily in the tree, he heard his name called. He went up to the bed. Mr. Carey was lying on his back, with his eyes looking at the ceiling. He did not turn them on Philip. Philip saw that sweat was on his forehead, and he took a towel and wiped it. Is that you, Philip? the old man asked. Philip was startled because the voice was suddenly changed. It was hoarse and low. So would a man speak if he was cold with fear. Yes, do you want anything? There was a pause and still the unseeing eyes stared at the ceiling. Then a twitch passed over his face. I think I'm going to die, he said. Oh, what nonsense, cried Philip. You're not going to die for years. Two tears were wrung from the old man's eyes. They moved Philip horribly. His uncle had never betrayed any particular emotion in the affairs of life, and it was dreadful to see them now, for they signified a terror that was unspeakable. Send for Mr. Simmons, he said. I want to take the communion. Mr. Simmons was the curate. Now, asked Philip, soon, or else it'll be too late. Philip went to awake Mrs. Foster, but it was later than he thought, and she was already up. He told her to send the gardener with a message, and he went back to his uncle's room. Have you sent for Mr. Simmons? Yes. There was a silence. Philip sat by the bedside and occasionally wiped the sweating forehead. Let me hold your hand, Philip, the old man said at last. Philip gave him his hand and clung to it as to life for comfort in his extremity. Perhaps he had never really loved anyone in all his days, but now he turned instinctively to a human being. His hand was wet and cold. It grasped Philip's with feeble, despairing energy. The old man was fighting with the fear of death, and Philip thought that all must go through that. Oh, how monstrous it was! And they could believe in a God that allowed his creatures to suffer such a cruel torture. He had never cared for his uncle, and for two years he had longed every day for his death. 
but now he could not overcome the compassion that filled his heart. What a price to pay for being other than the beasts. They, remi- they remained in silence, broken only once by a low inquiry by Mr. Carey. Hasn't he come yet? At last the housekeeper came in softly to say that Mr. Simmons was there. He carried a bag in which were his surplus and his hood. Mrs. Foster brought the communion plate. Mr. Simmons shook hands silently with Philip and then, with professional gravity, went to the sick man's side. Philip and the maid went out of the room. Philip walked round the garden, all fresh and dewy in the morning. The birds were singing gaily, the sky was blue, but the air, salt-laden, was sweet and cool. The roses were in full bloom. The trees of the greens, the green of the lawns, the green of the trees, the green of the lawns was eager and brilliant. Philip walked, and as he walked, he thought of the mystery which was proceeding in that bedroom. It gave him a peculiar emotion. Presently, Mrs. Foster came out to him and said that his uncle wished to see him. The curate was putting his things back into the black bag. The sick man turned his head a little and greeted him with a smile. Philip was astonished, for there was a change in him, an extraordinary change. His eyes he had no longer the terror-stricken look, and the pinching of his face was gone. He looked happy and serene. I'm quite prepared now, he said, and his voice had a different tone in it. When the Lord sees fit to call me, I am ready to give him my soul into his hands. Philip did not speak. He could see that his uncle was sincere. It was almost a miracle. He had taken the body and the blood of his saviour, and they had given him strength so that he no longer feared the inevitable passage into the night. He knew he was going to die. He was resigned. He only said one thing more. I shall rejoin my dear wife. It startled Philip. He remembered with what a callous selfishness his uncle had treated her. How obtuse he had been to her humble, devoted love. The curate, deeply moved, went away, and Mrs. Foster, weeping, accompanied him to the door. Mr. Carey, exhausted by his effort, fell into a light doze, and Philip sat down by the bed and waited for the end. The morning wore on, and the old man's breathing grew stertorous. The doctor came and said he was dying. He was unconscious, and he he had pecked feebly at the sheets. He was restless, and he cried out. Dr. Wigram gave him a hypodermic injection. It can't do any good now. He may die at any moment. The door looked... Sorry. The doctor looked at his watch, and then at the patient. Philip saw that it was one o'clock. Dr. Wigram was thinking of his dinner. It's no use your waiting, he said. There's nothing I can do, said the doctor. When he was gone, Mr. Foster asked Philip if he would go to the carpenter, who was also the undertaker, and tell him to send a woman to lay out the body. You want a little fresh air, she said. It'll do you good. The undertaker lived half a mile away. When Philip gave him his message, he said, when did the poor old gentleman die? Philip hesitated. It occurred to him that it would seem brutal to fetch a woman to wash the body while his uncle still lived, and he wondered why Mrs. Foster had asked him to come. They would think he was in a great hurry to kill off the old man. He thought the undertaker looked at him oddly. He repeated the question. It irritated Philip. It was no business of his. When did the vicar pass away? Philip's first impulse was to say that it had just happened, but then it would seem inexplicable if the sick man lingered for several hours. He reddened and answered awkwardly, Oh, he isn't exactly dead yet. The undertaker looked at him in perplexity and he hurried to explain, Mrs. Foster is all alone and she wants a woman there. You understand, don't you? He may be dead by now. The undertaker nodded, Oh, yes, I see. I'll send someone up at once. 
When Philip got back to the vicarage, he went up to the bedroom. Mrs. Foster rose from her chair by the bedside. He's just as he was when you left, she said. She went down to get herself something to eat, and Philip watched curiously the process of death. There was nothing human now in the unconscious being that struggled feebly. Something, Sometimes it, a muttered ejaculation issued from the loose mouth. The sun beat down hotly from a cloudless sky, but the trees in the garden were pleasant and cool. It was a lovely day. A blue bottle buzzed against the window pane. Suddenly there was a loud rattle. It made Philip start. It was horribly frightening. A movement passed through the limbs, and the old man was dead. The machine had run down. The blue bottle buzzed, buzzed noisily against the window pane. All right, there we go. Another chapter down. The vicar of Blackstable has died. Have your say about the chapter at the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening and I will see you tomorrow.